to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hi, Brennan. Today, we're talking with Nelson Everhart, composer, teacher, and musician. Say hi, Nelson. Hello, Nelson. <laughs> and uh, I'd just like to talk about something real quick. Have either one of you guys heard of Buzz Book Expo? Only about 30 times, but I could use a refresher. Well, I've never heard anything about it. Tell us more. All right, let me tell you. It's for readers, book reviewers, podcasters, librarians, booksellers, lovers of great scary books. Buzz Book Expo 2020 is just around the corner. Buzz Book Expo is a live streaming event in which publishers will be announcing all the great new horror fiction releases they have to offer through the coming year. There will be interviews, Q&As, presentations, even book covers, and more from all your favorite horror publishers all for free. Spend two days immersed in exciting book talk from publishers and authors alike. The event will take place on August 22nd and 23rd. All information, including links to the expo, can be found at Mary Sanji, that is M-A-R-Y-S-A-N-G-I, that is M-A-R-Y-S-A-N-G-I dot WordPress dot com slash Buzz Book Expo 2020. We hope to see you there. Nelson, thank you so much for coming on today, man. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. We really appreciate it. Um, I don't really understand how Twitter became so popular, but pretty much all my childhood, you name it, are on there and have an account. And now I'm an adult, so I'm like, holy shit, that's the guy that did this game and that game. And let's talk about that for a little bit. What got you into way back? What got you into music? Uh, my, my whole family was kind of musical. My grandfather on my mom's side played trumpet and my mom played clarinet and piano and my dad played drums. I have a picture of me when I'm like three years old sitting in my dad's drums and I got drumsticks in both hands and the bottles hanging out of my mouth and I'm just like <laughs> drumming away. So that's, that's, that tells everybody that picture and another one, just, I'm like six or eight years old or something like that. And I'm listening to uh, the double LP of the Star Wars soundtrack in these gigantic white 70s headphones that my dad had. And I'm, I'm playing with the calculator. That's what kind of nerd I am <laughs> from the OG. Was it, was it, it was destined. Absolutely. Was it New Hope or was it Empire? Yes, yeah, New Hope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Empire had come out, honestly. Mm. I was born in 74, and if I was six, that's like, well, mm. yeah, okay. It had probably come out, but maybe I hadn't quite seen it yet. That score was the Star Wars score. I always kind of credit with getting me into film because it was just like it was the first time I was, you know, just surrounded with all of these instruments and all this music. And and the there was something about the fact that it was it was married so clearly to the picture. And, you know, the, the one was commenting on the other to make something, you know, more powerful than just the, the images themselves. Absolutely. That's what appealed to it. About John, it to me. John Williams is like one of the most recognizable composers, I think, ever in the yeah. film industry. Yeah. So besides, I mean, you name it. What was it? Star Wars. Uh, Indiana Jones was one of them, too. And E.T., Superman. Uh, the list goes on. <laughs> the list does go on. So, Brennan, before I start yammering away, how about you jump in real quick? Because he is also very heavily influenced in music and he's a music teacher and he plays piano the keyboard like you too 
So is is keyboard your primary instrument or? I would say I I studied trumpet at school uh, where I went in Toronto and but I was always kind of like I was always messing around the keyboard just because that was how you could write music back in the day. I had like a little Casio uh, Cheesemaster 3000, I think it was. And so, you know, I'm playing with the Bossa Nova rhythms and stuff like that and recording my little thing. So the keyboard is kind of the interface that you kind of needed to play with if you're going to get into it, um, into into writing. And I just, you know, I started, I think, playing Billy Joel songs and stuff like that. And then just uh, slowly, you know, started writing my own things and messing around with it. I mean, I think if I like if I was a dancer, I'd want to be a choreographer. And if I was a, you know, um, a painter, you know, I, I would just always want to create the things rather than just kind of um, listen to them or, you know, uh, absorb them. I think that was my thing. Do you, do you play keys? I yeah, I'm I, I, I teach a lot of piano lessons. My main yeah. instrument is bass, but the route I took as a teacher uh, there's only so much mileage you can get out of bass. Um, <laughs> after that, you stand in front of a classroom full of kids. They want to hear harmony. Um, right. And also the piano doesn't transport kids today super in their well. Harmony. So. I know. I know. It's like, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a bass note and, you know, you can you can figure out the upper. <laughs> there you go. My I, brother I'm, plays I'm so, bass and he's probably a better musician than me. So it's it, it's such a cool instrument not to harp on my own instrument, but. Just because it, it it is, you know, for the most part, you know, a uh, melodic instrument, but you have to have that fundamental understanding of harmony in order to be halfway decent at it. Sure, sure. I'm just thrilled. You know, I, I was worried at first because you said, uh, you know, that that initial picture was you with drumsticks and um Patrick is a drummer, and I thought I was going to get to make some drummer jokes, but that went out the window when I, you know, I was really afraid at first you were going to say you were a drummer. So why, why stop? I mean, yeah. do it anyway. I, I like, I love a good drummer joke. Yeah, let's hear it. How do you know when there's a drummer at your door? Doesn't know when to come in and the knock speeds up. <laughs> I was going to go simpler and just, you know, make light of the fact that you probably have no idea what we're referring to when we mention harmony. <laughs> I just hear loud bangs in my head and just. <laughs> Patrick hit stuff. <laughs> All right, SpongeBob. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brandon, do you have any more questions on that uh, or can I jump into something else? No, you can go ahead and take us on. Well, hold on, Brandon. What, who's your favorite bass player? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that could go on a while. Um, so the school I went to, um, sorry, this is an even longer answer than you need, but the school I went to was a relatively small school, um, and I had never played upright before I got in. Um, and when you got in, you kind of had to, day one, they, you know, met you at the door and they said, classical or jazz, go. Um, and jazz was really closer to what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so... I ended up, you know, discovering a lot of people. Uh, Paul Chambers absolutely is up there. Um, Jimmy Garrison is a huge one. I'm, I'm a, I fell in love with everything Coltrane did. And I think his quartet is just like the top notch as far as that style of music. Yeah. For electric. Oh, I don't know. That's, that's a little bit tougher. Um, I, I, I love Jocko, but I, I also love, you know, grooves. If you um, study jazz bass at all, you have to say Jocko. Yeah, it's it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that yeah uh, they, the they students, string you up if you don't. All the students at my at my school had the hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and you players. know it, 
And and they all had to learn Teen Town as well. Yeah. <laughs> if, they, if they couldn't play Teen Town, they get booted get from the out. university. Right. <laughs> Patrick, go on ahead. All right, sure. So uh, I know that, well, at least I read that your first uh, video game soundtrack was the Crow City of Angels. Was there anything before that? Uh, I don't think so. There, there were a few that kind of happened at the same time. I was living in uh, Toronto, and there's a company called Gray Matter up there, and they were making... They had had some success uh, doing kind of um, side-scroller, like smaller kind of side-scroller games, I think. Um, I don't I don't remember the first one, but the, the guy, the, the president of the company had programmed it all, you know, himself when he was 13 or whatever. And, you know, oh was kind God. of taking it into his his company. So they had a lot of success. And it was sort of the first era of the 3D games. Mm-hmm. Where people were trying to figure out, you know, like how the interface worked and how you, you know, what does up represent on the joystick? Okay, well, you're walking forward, but is that like into the screen away from me? Or is it taking into consideration the perspective of the, you know, where the guy is pointing? And it's mm-hmm. like, it, it was just a struggle constantly. So we did, there was another game called Perfect Weapon that we did at the same time. It was also, uh, I think it was PlayStation 1. And then Crow City of Angels. And I think that was about, all that we got out the door. We were working on a uh, comic book property called uh, Gen 13 at, a, at one point, and it, it kind of went back to the side-scroller thing, and I thought it was just a much stronger game. I was excited that we were getting back into something that it, it seemed like you know people were more comfortable programming for. Oh, I, but, I can't, can't even imagine. Yeah, so that's that. So th- And those two games were hotly contested. I, I was seeing it years later. People were talking about the original PlayStation, like what was the worst game yep. on the PlayStation One, and both of those were like were fighting for first <laughs> because Imperfect <laughs> Weapon, the dude was like, you know, he's just constantly going around, and he would get because you know people were still experimenting with the 3D stuff, they would get stuck on the geometry of the level, mm-hmm. and so there could be like a pixel, you know, just sort of out of you know place or a polygon that didn't line up and you'd be walking along this flat rock and all of a sudden you would just stop and to give feedback to the player the the guy says no way and so most of the game was trying to stop him from just going no way no way no way (laughs) but luckily that wasn't my department so i just could kind of focus on the music part of it i wish i played that now but uh i was God, I was born in 89, so I don't know if I would have... Shut up. Yeah, no, I got big into video game. My, I got a Nintendo Entertainment System when I was three, so that's you no know, 92. It's Super Mario Brothers 1, the side scroll, not the one with the... um, Not the older one where it's Mario and Luigi. Yeah. It was, yeah, so Super Mario Brothers 1, that was fun, and I just couldn't beat the first level that I was three, so... I wasn't very good at it. I was never a completist when I was a kid, so it's like I would just sort of start the games and probably never finish them. I don't think <laughs> I finished Mario. I don't Do think you... I finished any Mario except, like, Sunshine later on. Okay. Now, so you were born in 74, you said? Yeah. Okay, so you were young or old enough, I guess, however you want to look at it, to really enjoy and love the 80s and the arcade era in its prime. Yeah, did, oh, did, I definitely spent some time in the in the in arcades in the eighties. Yeah, um, I don't remember when you moved to, and I forgive me if you already said this. I don't remember when you said you moved to Toronto. It was Toronto. 
Yeah, I think it was 11 or something like that. All I could find is that you li- you moved around in New England. Brennan and I are from Massachusetts. Do you okay. happen to live there? No. I lived in Connecticut. Okay. And I, well, I was born in Delaware, and then I lived in Connecticut for eight years, and then I moved to uh, Maine for two or three years, and that's and then moved to Toronto. Were you a military brat or anything like that? No, my, my dad was in manufacturing. Uh, he worked for a company called Cheeseboro Ponds, uh, and then like he was working – they made like um, Vaseline intensive care and Vaseline products and lipstick and, you know, kind of personal care products. And then he got transferred to one of the divisions, which was uh, their shoe company, Bass Shoes. And so he made shoes for a while. And then he kind of went to and then we went to Toronto uh, where he was kind of was at the head office. So he was just sort of upwardly mobile uh, manufacturing executive. And we, we just kind of traveled all over doing that. Yeah, because I don't hear any Canadian accent whatsoever. <laughs> uh, maybe a couple drinks, a couple two fours, maybe it'll start coming out. That's yeah, like me. Will come. Yeah, that's like me with my Boston accent. <laughs> <laughs> I we'll uh, go own a boat. <laughs> now, sorry, eh? I mean, I can pull it out when I need to. <laughs> uh, watching Trailer Park Boys for me, I started noticing <laughs> the uh, fun little things like, uh, "What are you talking to boots?" Like, yeah. he really emphasizes that. All right, I got to correct you. Everybody, a lot of Americans think it's it's like boot. You know, okay. what are you talking about? Boot? It's a boat. Yep. Like, oat and a boat. Okay. To be, I, more, I to be more absolutely accurate to that. I appreciate it. In case I mock it like an, an asshole American, I want to be correct. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we need all the friends we can get right now. Uh to be yeah. fair, Patrick, you might have known that we just we, we discovered, uh, you know, recently in podcasts that when uh, when Patrick tries to do an impression, it just it doesn't go well. Um, <laughs> so if he might have been going for oat. <laughs> yeah, we were talking with the two actresses and the one of the screenwriters on host last night and I Morgan Freeman came up and uh, Brennan informed me that it sounds like Nixon. And when I told my wife, she said, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? You are terrible at that. I, yes. I love bad impressions. <laughs> Patrick, you want to give us one? <laughs> uh, sure. Who do you want me to piss off or make do, fun? Do of? Richard Nixon. See what happens. Maybe I don't know what he's Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I don't know what he sounds I like. See, I can't do it. I'm not a crook. I can't do that shit. <laughs> now you sound like Clint Eastwood, actually. <laughs> so, what was the experience like doing that first? video game the um the the sequel to the crow like that's i don't know but i would imagine that's one of the first uh films to video game adaptations i mean uh, films of video game did they say that right yeah i mean probably like that was kind of it got to the point where you probably practically couldn't make a game that wasn't a an adaptation of a you know movie or a tv show or uh and then we started getting into comic books and stuff we were doing there's one called 13 Bullets that Acclaim was working on for you know for a bit. It was kind of exciting, and then uh, Acclaim went out of business. Um, but, but yeah, it's it, all of the kind of marketing for the property is sort of done for you. So I think a lot of a lot of the bean counters that you know sit at the top of the companies are like, we don't have to market this at all. I don't have to buy any advertising for it. Everybody knows what the story is, and you know if they want the game or not, they already kind of know that. Um, but getting back to the question you asked me. Uh, 
it was a it was a lot of fun. It was kind of electrifying. I remember going in there, and it was the first time that I'd sort of imagined that the stuff that I was doing at home in my basement could be, you know, a career that somebody's you know interested in in paying for. And the and the visibility was really cool. I remember going into uh, the company Gray Matter, and we were working on that uh, Gen 13 game. And I remember walking down the aisle where all the testers were playing it. And they have to have the sound on to test for sound bugs and stuff, too. So I was hearing my music from about, you know, 15 different stations, all at different points in the thing and just watching the testers go. Just I hate this. This is terrible. (laughs) Just because they'd heard it a million times. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is kind of it's powerful that, you know, anything that you're going to do is going to get out there on that kind of that kind of level. I went to a buddy of mine uh, had his wedding in Italy. And so we went to Italy that happened to be the summer that I think Turok Evolution came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking, I think we were in Venice and walking past a video game store that had it in the front, you know, window. And I was just like, oh, wow. So it was, it was exciting. I didn't, I didn't know that that could have happened. I actually went to high school with a guy who was doing the, uh, the interface art. Like the on-screen, you know, your score and the and the health meter and stuff like that. Mm. And it's I just I just sort of knew him in passing from high school and happened to meet him on a BBS. This was before the internet. I was just chatting with him and he was like, "I work for a company that does video games." And I'm like, "That's <laughs> incredible." <laughs> and I was like, "So is there anything I could do to do?" And and it just later came up that they needed another kind of audio designer guy. And I was like, "Okay, so." Keep your network wide, kids. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the whole thing with Evolution, I remember when that came out because my f- very first video game when I was 12, I, my mom was cool with me buying it. I don't know if she actually knew what the content was, if she would be <laughs> cool with it. I would get my video games in a few places. One of them was Toys R Us. Super weird place to get an M-rated game. But I got Turok 2, Seeds of Evil. I just remember you had this blade and you could cut off like lizard creatures' heads and yeah. it was just gush blood and then the game that you compose one of my truly favorite games is Turok 3 shadows of oblivion and that was some dark shit and it was weird it was a weird game yeah it was pretty weird (laughs) (laughs) i remember going is this the storyline it uh the the guy that designed the game dave dinspear i think uh, they had a gigantic hit with the first Turok and then with the second one, just kind of played off of that. It just it was gigantic. The whole studio. I uh, was working in Austin, Texas, for that game at Acclaim's d- uh, development studio down there, and they were that whole studio kind of took off with Turok. Like that that game let them kind of just sort of flourish and build up the studio. And then I think by the by the third one, they were trying to figure out what new things they could do, and it was you know maybe coming up a little bit spare <laughs> with it, but. I mean, everything was just cranked to the nines. It was uh, the weaponry was insanity. There was the one I don't remember the names of any of the weapons anymore, but the one there's one that like went out and attached to the dude's head and then mm. exploded. <laughs> this oh, and then there's the cerebral bore which latched onto a guy's head and then drilled down into it. Mm-hmm. Lovely. For the oh. time, it was it was kind of <laughs> big. I remember in Germany, they don't they didn't allow blood in video games then, so they they colored it green. I remember that option. I played with that because I thought it was neat. But <laughs> the, so for Brandon, Brandon, I don't think played it. And for anyone that 
hasn't played it. Um, the very first level is you're in the city and it's just the music matches it. Everything's dark. There's like some weird Lovecraft fucking monster tentacle thing coming from a building. Guy, yeah. At one point you're in a, a sewer and you see this guy have his upper torso ripped off and his legs fall on you. And the whole and then there's cops trying to kill you. The whole thing is just like I don't know what this is. I'm like a 13, 14 year old kid. I'm like uh, this is fun though. And it was a game that started off being about hunting dinosaurs. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Torso crawling on the floor. So I can't find any before I even hit or reached out to you. I couldn't find any document t- style type uh, video on YouTube of any of the Turok uh, games, which I thought was weird because that the as a whole it was a very popular game for the time. Yeah. Uh, online stuff. I, I mean, I've seen, I think I've seen people do playthroughs here and there. Uh, and there was a guide in an interview with uh, a few months back. His name was Dynamite uh, on YouTube. And I think his channel has some, he did some other interviews with some of the uh, programmers and animators and art guys and stuff. So he had more information on that game than I ever knew. It's like, I worked in the studio where that game was happening and he was like, you know, now this guy said that this happened, and I was like, I, I was in my little studio, in my <laughs> headphones, doing my job. <laughs> it's like there's probably a lot of fun going on out there, but I, I, I didn't know kind of most of what was going on because you're sort of insulated in, uh, in the sound department because it's like nobody else really knows what to do with you. It's a, it's a different application, I think, than, than doing art you know, assembling that and doing an animation and the programmers. And so there's, there's always like kind of the clicks around it, but sound is kind of the end. Like everything else sort of has to be done before sound comes in. Right. So it's sort of like, you know, they've already checked out <laughs> and you're like, Hey guys, let's go. What can, you know, what can we do? It's like, well, there's a list over there on the fridge. Just, you know, get to it. Uh, if you're necessary, they just don't want to deal with you. <laughs> that, that would make for that's it, it's the professional equivalent of you know playing in a bar in the corner they tell you it's a stage but it's really you know level with the floor yeah it that used would, to be a table that would yeah. make for a funny mockumentary show i know they've been i've heard of some projects like about doing i think there was one ever got around to seeing it and i guess nobody else did because i think it's gone I'm you. I'm sorry. Was that just me, Brian, or did he cut out? I lost him for a second. Yeah. Am I back? Uh, I yeah, you're, you're back. back. I lost okay. you at the whole uh, answering or replying to the mockumentary. Part. It was a terror. It was a terrible answer anyway. So we'll just pretend it never <laughs> never existed. Okay. Um. So I was wondering if you ever watched G4, the uh, video game channel that was out for is like. 2002 to 2014 a little bit a little bit i asked because they had this series called icon and i really loved it uh when it was out and uh it would just it'd be documentaries on uh game developers um video games companies there was none on acclaim but again i i feel like acclaim was a huge company back then and uh what was I guess uh, this is probably a weird generic question, but what was it like to work for them? Because that was you were working at a time when you said it yourself, 3D um, games were kind of new. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and it was a whole new world. And you, I like them. I still like my N64. I like 2D scrollers too. But yeah, what was that like? Because were you a gamer as well back then, or? Uh, I the problem with like anytime you like meet real gamers, it makes you stop and go, okay, I'm not really not really a gamer. I enjoyed gamers games from like way back in the day. Like we had an Atari 2600. We had an Atari 5200. We had an NES. We got the PlayStation. We had a Genesis. And then my brother and I got a Gen- uh, Sega CD for the, you know, for the Genesis. And I mean, I've had all of the systems and been aware of the stuff that's on there, but never had, like I was usually goofing around with music or playing in bands or like I did musicals for a while um and like stuff like that so it was never i never had like the amount of time necessary to really devote to it to where you get kind of sucked in and and can't really let go of that um so i i would i guess i understood it but i was never i never really felt like i was a super uh super gamer like into into all the stuff i'd certainly heard of acclaim um when i was working at gray matter they had some kind of publishing deal that that was going to go on with acclaim so i knew about them and then also I remember specifically the day when somebody brought in Turok. Mm-hmm. The N64 had just come out. Somebody brought Turok in. And I remember everybody just crowding around in the, the conference room playing that and going, oh, my God. And then, like, flash forward, you know, a few years, and I was at the studio with the people that made the game. So, like, it was cool. It was really neat to just be um, to be doing something with that. I always knew that I wanted to write music for something. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't usually like I didn't just want to make albums or, or things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but my music always kind of went with something. So like when I was in college, I uh, scored, you know, independent films that the film students were doing. And there were like, there were some dance, uh, dance like groups that I uh, did some music for uh, and things like that. So, I, and I always loved kind of doing the film stuff. So you were mentioning the, the early scenes in um, Seeds of Evil, and it was like I remember scoring that being like the most interesting part. Like writing the music for the the, the levels is interesting too in another way, but I like kind of telling the story, you know, trying to really get into you know what does the music do here to underline you know all of the things that you want the uh, the audience to feel. So working for Acclaim was really cool, and it was a giant company that. You know, I had something that I could add to their uh, add to their stuff. My first game there was a uh, South Park Chef's Love Shack. I was gonna ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, it it was a lot of it was a lot of fun because I've always liked writing in different styles. And that that game, it was like you don't know Jack, but then there was all these like kind of classic uh, like Atari games, mostly like things based on Atari games like Stampede and Asteroids and things like that. So I got to write like my John Williams, you know, space over the top space theme and I got to write a, you know, Western kind of Americana Copeland theme for the stampede, you know, game and everything mm-hmm. in between. And the, the game show music was all like Waka Chicka seventies, uh, <laughs> you know, game show quasi porn, uh, score. <laughs> so South Park, sh- uh, chef's love shack. That was literally in the heyday of South Park. And, uh, I th- that was either the year of, or after the, the film came out. Which, again, my childhood, like, I was a huge fan of that. I remember it coming out. I remember the team went out to see it one night. So I think it was either at the same time or right after the game came out. And I 
I still think it's funny. I mean, I, I laugh at a lot of things, but um, for the game that you were on, what was that process any different? Because the content, especially for the late nineties, I gotta imagine was like, are we gonna get away with this? Did you feel <laughs> did you feel that way at all? I well, yeah. Some of the questions are like, wow. <laughs> Um, but I also remember I was editing Isaac Hayes, uh, his chef dialogue. And it's like, they just basically took a tape and, and were rolling for like hours. And so he was in there and just reading, reading his lines and just getting loopy by the end of it. And just like <laughs> going off on some directions. You're like, Oh wow. I mean, nothing, nothing bad. It's just the dude who's like, you know, just talking about things because he's just like bored of what they're doing. And he was more interested in having a conversation with somebody in the in the booth. So, yeah, that was uh, it was really cool to be working on a property that was that big. I always have on any team. I have like a different experience than the rest of the team mostly does. Even the sound guys, because like when you're writing music, you're like, so that's like it's one person's responsibility. Whereas like the writing and the art and the animation, even sound design is usually like a few people are working on that. So you're kind of in your own little world and then you play it for people and they're like, okay, that's good. More of this, less that. And you're like, okay. And then you run back into your cave and work by yourself some more. So it's my experience doesn't, uh, doesn't usually match up with other people's on it. I heard about people uh, from other stuff just having like, you know, not a not great time on a game. And I was just like, oh, really? I had a blast <laughs> by myself. Well, we're both, me and Brennan are both writers, so we can relate to the enjoyment of, being by yourself for most of a project. Are you both doing horror stuff? Uh, typically horror, anything dark fiction, which, you know, just darker subgenres. Whatever um, springs to mind, which is usually dark and <laughs> morbid. So, <laughs> um, um, Nelson, I'd actually love to hear a little bit more about process. Um, go, go as big as you want, but uh, I guess we could start with um, when you – uh, kind of enter the process do you get cues as far as what they're looking for do you just get video of gameplay and free reign um how 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 does it start usually the game isn't done to the point where there's like gameplay um i did a game with king's isle called wizard 101 that's i think came out in 2000 it's been going on for like 14 or 15 years by this point um, and, and when they started, they had a few levels together cause they were launching this whole gigantic game. So I got to run around in, in that game a little bit. Um, occasionally there's like a, a little bit of the world geometry in and I can run around and see it. Uh, I get inspired by the visuals. So I like to see the architecture, you know, of where you are or, you know, the land forms of where they are, the colors. And then that gives you, uh, I usually like to feel the pace of whatever it is. So that that's sometimes a little tricky because usually if you have NPC characters in a game walking around, you know, that's usually kind of like the last thing to go into the into the level after they get kind of the whole thing designed. So sometimes I just get like still images of, you know, these are some of the main characters that are going to be in this, uh, you know, game. And this is going this is a screen for that. And this is the uh, the main village that you walk around. So I get those things. And then a lot of times I'll ask uh, just to get an idea of where their head's at, I'll ask for references from like other, you know, TV or film scores or, you know, any music really just to get an idea of where they, uh, what they kind of envision for it. And I 
make sure to preface it with like, I don't know if, you know, what I do will come out sounding like this, but it's good to kind of feed my brain, um, just some ideas. Uh, and then I usually try and kind of step away from it for a little bit just to let my subconscious kind of work on it. It works on it for a little bit and then I come back in and I usually have something that I kind of want to say or, or like a, an angle I want to start with. So I'll start goofing around on that and see if it, you know, breaks anything loose. Um, and that it's, it's gotten to the point where the muse shows up on time. You know, when it's like I sit down, I can, I kind of know some of the tricks that I can use to make, you know, to make myself start to kick something out. Occasionally I'll start, actually a lot of the time I'll start something just to try and get started on something and then usually throw away the first like, you know, eight or 16 bars or something. Cause it's like, it took me a while to get to what I was, you know, really trying to get at. Um, so that happens a lot. And then it's really, um, I've been working with the, a lot of the companies that I work with, you know, for a long time. So there's usually a really good rapport. I love working with friends where it's like, you know, uh, you can just, you trust them. Like, you, you know how, what they're going to give to you and you know, when they're, you know, BSing you and you know, when they're, you know, honestly impressed with something that you did. Um, so that's, that's been a lot of fun. Uh, I, I actually met the guys at Kings Isle who I've been working with for over a decade. I just met them like a couple years ago for the first time in real life because I'd been working with them online for, you know, forever since the game started. Cause I was up here in Cincinnati and they're down in Austin. So, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of trippy. That says a lot about what I was talking about before. Where it's like, my experience is nothing like anybody's experience <laughs> actually making the game, uh, is like, is that kind of what you're talking about? Oh yeah, any? absolutely. Um, I'm happy to I, go into any, any area of it more if there's, you know, something Oh, else. I definitely have follow-ups, but real quick, I just, I, I noticed so many parallels with writing, Patrick. I don't know if you picked up on that too, but just, um, one of the big ones was just kind of making that time to work um, and, and trying to get in the headspace of, okay, I, I've, I've got to do this. Um, and even where you said, I'm going to write like eight or 16 bars, even if they're going to go in the garbage after, you know, just uh, again, just to get the words down, yeah. um, even just, just to get the momentum moving. Um, and then even to knowing who you can trust to, take a listen to or a look at what you've uh, what you've done and give you honest and very useful feedback. This is, you know, the parallels there. Just I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so I, I'm interested, actually, do you ever get, you know, in, in your years of experience, um, either not enough direction or an obnoxious amount of direction as far as what they they're looking for? Uh, almost everybody has been you know, super respectful of the, you know, I don't, a lot of people, I hear the phrase, like, I'm not a musician, you know, from people a lot. Like I'm sure you hear, well, I'm not really a writer, but I think that, you know, and so there's usually that kind of respect there for, you know, just what you're doing, which is always super helpful. So it doesn't usually go too far. I mean, occasionally they can, uh, you know, offer things that are just kind of like, uh, maybe it, it doesn't really, it's not really landing, you know, or it's like, it's just not something that I'm super comfortable with. So I, I don't hundred percent get it, but usually I can kind of, uh, g- grab what they're, what they're sort of getting at, even if they don't have the words, you know, uh, to get there. Uh, and then, or I just completely, you know, 
uh, improvise my way, do a little side shoe and, uh, or soft shoe dance. And then like, here, this is what you're thinking. Right. And they go, Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. You know, that works too. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> so there, there is always like a fake it till you make it kind of, uh, yep. element to it. You know, when, when you're working with, you know, new, uh, relationships, I had, uh, uh, a thing happened like I was I'm working on a game with the team that I mostly haven't worked with before and it's like um the the guy I'm working with on sound he wanted to show the guy the the producer like the the main guy in the game a tune uh and it wasn't done you know it's kind of like all right here's like a sketch and stuff and it's like <laughs> not knowing that guy's sensibilities I'm not sure h- how his uh imagination you know, is going to take it like I don't know how good his imagination is where he can go. Oh, well, Nelson usually does this and takes it that way because we don't you know, really know each other that way yet. So uh, that's oh, that's a really good um, that's a place where I think the, the relationship becomes important and the trust factor where it's like, OK, well, I'm trusting you to tell this guy this isn't done and, you know, make all the excuses before he listens to it. So he's not confused. <laughs> I find it best not to tax anybody's imagination you know, when you can help it, you know, it's like if you had to hand, hand pages over, you wouldn't hand, you know, like just sort of these half formed paragraphs over. Cause you're like, they're not going to have any idea what I'm, you know, what I'm talking about. You'd probably need to fill some of that stuff in before you felt confident, you know, somebody else is going to be able to, you know, sort of pick that up and, and, and figure out where you're going with that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, one of the first things I picked up on and not as a parallel to writing, but more of a parallel to life in general, you know, you kind of started off with, uh, almost everybody has been super respectful and I I find that's generally not true. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's, it sounds like you had a good experience because most people, uh, most people in their jobs can't say almost everybody is super respectful, whether they're talking about, uh, coworkers, customers, or, uh, you know, supervisors, whatever. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I, I think it's more just like apathy where it's like, if somebody's, it's more like if somebody had something bad to say to, to me or, you know, wanted to just like uh, talk me down or something, it probably happened when I didn't hear it. I, yeah. I have been, uh, I have like a couple of handlers at some of the companies that I work with that it's like, these are the guys that know me and they like know how to take this to, you know, somebody, if I have an idea. And so, so if they're bad mouthing me, I have no idea. So I am fortunate in that respect. <laughs> well, I, I won't go into detail cause I'd like to keep my job, but, um, <laughs> I, I absolutely have had experience with that. You know, well, I, I don't know music, so I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you know what you're doing. Um, I, there's not always respect towards the music person, but, uh, you definitely get a little bit of leeway in that department. Now, as far as your personal process, I'm uh, I- I'm curious about key particularly. How do you make decisions um, about what key a song is going to be in? Um, and and I-, I guess I would even add, you know, do you put any stock in that whole idea that like you know D major is uh, is your, is for music of triumph. Um, <laughs> F major is for more calm music. Do you put any stock in that idea at all? <laughs> no, that would, that would force me to have to remember 12, uh, keys of, uh, moods or something. It's usually, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm probably locked to the keyboard. So it's like, you know, the white keys are, are usually a little uh, safer, you know, when I'm composing, but, 
what I like to do is change the key, to modulate and change the key uh, a lot during the a lot of the uh, level music that I write. So this is a the wallpaper music that you're hearing, you know, while you're running around for 20 hours. And I like to try to make that th- that music interesting for as long as humanly possible. So one of my tricks is to you know be changing the the keys up constantly. So I have wound myself into some strange keys uh, a few times, and it's like it's usually like the easier keys to play in keyboard. But I was doing I was doing a sheet music project for something, and I have musicians yelling at me because they're like you know. D flat minor. What, what were you thinking? And I was like, I wasn't really thinking, you know, your key that I was going to transpose into that. One of the biggest things I wrote for uh wizard one one was like that, the common steam. It's like a wizard one is like a Harry Potter, uh, MMORPG, Harry Potter inspired, um, you know, uh, magic school. And so that the, the common theme has become like, everybody's heard it a million times and it's really happy. And, it was it was a pretty successful theme, uh, and then I had to transpose it into other keys, and it just got ugly from there. So there's there's no real uh, there's no real method to it other than just kind of where I'm feeling the stuff going and modulating usually. Yeah, I'll I'll tell one quick story, and then I'll you know get away before the people who just came here to hear about Lovecraft tentacles and uh, torso torso <laughs> eviscerations completely uh, bail on us, but. Uh, I when when this whole thing hit, I started uh, teaching piano lessons from home over uh, FaceTime, and I had one student who was uh, most of the pieces he was working on in his method book uh, were in G major, um, but their piano was pretty much exactly a half step out of tune. So in order to demonstrate everything, I had to mentally transpose all his music to F sharp major, mm-hmm. which. As, as, you know, a bass player first and a piano player second was mental gymnastics. You're used um, to working in C, yeah. Exactly. I like my white keys as well. Um, <laughs> and well, if, if I may, so I have a question. Do you guys, like, when you're writing, to try and get, like, in the mood, like I, I was talking about in the process that there was, uh, I like to kind of have ideas sort of swirling around but not focus, like, too too hard on them? Do you guys have any tricks to like, you know, shift yourself into a direction? You know, are you turning the lights out? Are you lighting candles? Brendan, Patrick, you want to go first? Or? Uh, all right. Um, so I guess the only quote unquote trick is that if I got an idea and I'm like, oh, I like that. I go, what if? And then I roll with that. And if I get stuck, um, sometimes I, well, now usually I work on two things at once. Um, that way, and it's, I was doing this before we heard an interview with Josh Mallerman, do their bird box, but then mm-hmm. he articulated it where I'm like, that's what I kind of do. Um, where it's like, if you get stuck in one, I jump to the other. And if I, for some reason get stuck in two, I'm just like, eh, I'll write some notes in my notebook of another idea. Yeah. So that doesn't I, work I like forever. That. That doesn't so work you, for you're everyone. Really, you're really chasing the inspiration where it's like, you know, if when it runs out, you're like, oh, well, it ran out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I got I believe we got one life. So I'm like, eh, I'll see where this goes <laughs> for a real quick example. Me and Brennan talk about like he he's newer to writing. I've written in the mindset where I want to be a novelist since 2013. 
And I, I was just telling them, I was like, oh, yeah, so I wrote uh, nine books, and uh, they were all first draft. And he goes, you never went back to them? I'm like, I've literally never looked at them. I remember them all, but <laughs> he's like, I couldn't do that. I'm like, well, I got other ideas. <laughs> well, and, and expanding, because what came to my mind first, too, was also that working on two things at once. Um, and what I kind of liked about the way uh, Josh Mellerman – put that forward is that the the idea behind that is yeah you can jump back and forth but a lot of times you almost kind of fool yourself into uh beating writer's block with the with, with idea number one because you know in the back of your mind you have idea number two to fall back on and you know be, just because you have that fail safe a lot of times it kind of opens up avenues uh and the other thing i would add to that and i don't know how or if it translates to music is just kind of writing with the idea that like what you get down doesn't have to sound good. Again, not exactly true for music. If if it's not, you know, if it doesn't read like a professional writer, it, if it reads like basically here's the idea as narrated by a kindergartner, I, I can always get those ideas down in whatever, you know, crayon scribble they'll come to me. And then go back when it's done and try and make it sound halfway decent and give it some flow. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I think those are probably my big two. I think there's an analogy there because I wind up doing a lot of polishing afterwards. There's some composers that like want it to sound perfect, like as soon as they're doing it and especially guitar players, it bugs them, you know, if the tone's not exactly right. And it's like, I couldn't care less if the tone's exactly right. It's like, you know, I got this idea. And it's coming out. I got to, you know, kind of see where that kind of takes me. And sometimes, I, you know, I'll, I'll run into a corner and I'll do uh, I'll, I'll do the Patrick play and I'll just like, you know what? I'm done for today <laughs> and just walk away and then come back to it the next day. And it's like, oh, it's like I know where this goes. You know, sometimes that works and sometimes it's a little more, you know, let's drink until something breaks. Holy crap. You guys just made me realize something that I never thought about. So I've been a drummer. I started in the fourth grade. I played in the school uh, orchestra band until the eighth grade. Um, I'm a rock and roll kid because my parents, like, I'm wearing a Led Zeppelin shirt. I got a Zeppelin tattoo. Like, I, that's the shit I love. I like, I know it's weird to say, like, all music. I like most music. But being a drummer, um, I just kind of do what sounds right. I play to whatever I, I have fun with. I never thought of that in the sense where it relates to why write the way I write? <laughs> I never thought That's that brilliant. you guys We made a breakthrough. <laughs> Lazy fair creativity. <laughs> and and oh, go ahead, Pat. I was just going to say, like, to be honest, I, I'm not planning on becoming – I would love to be a professional writer, but I'm not holding my breath, which is why I went to college, which is why I got the job I got because that's what I am. I'm assuming I'm going to retire. I'm not going to make money from the podcast. This is all for fun. And if I if I'm wrong, I get to laugh at myself. I was told we'd be making money at some point. Yeah, <laughs> they and, lied to us. And if uh, you know, if I get published here and there, and it, it picks up, great. If not, I'm always gonna write, and I'm just having fun doing it. And uh, the I got a wife and a son, and those are the biggest accomplishments of my life. Everything after that's just icing on the cake. So. Whatever, if if I never make it, I'm still going to write. So I got a question that kind of builds off of that. Are you like that with music? Do you 
if not doing not not composing um I don't know if on paper is the right term, but if you're not physically composing something or messing around with any instrument, are you always composing something in your head? Oh, yeah. You, so you can't – can you not help you – like if you hear whatever um, ambience – ambience, how do you say that word? Um, ambience is – yeah. Yeah, if you hear that just like in your day-to-day life, can you not help yourself? Because like I can't help myself but always think about 20 different stories. Are you like that with music? Yeah, it, it sort of runs. Like I was talking to my brother on the phone today and he was cooking in the kitchen and he had music on in the background. And it's like it was it was loud enough that I could hear it while I'm talking to him. And it was like just constantly my brain wants to go, you know, what's that chord? And it's like, oh, here comes the chorus. And it's like, oh, this, this is a great bridge. And it's <laughs> it's I mean, it's annoying sometimes, but Thankfully, I don't I have enough outlets for the music that it's like I get to do what, you know, I get to exercise those demons uh, and somebody's paying me for it. Usually, if I wouldn't, I mean, my wife and I write, you know, uh, music like pop music on the side just for for fun, because that's that's a neat thing to do as well. And it's I mean, we, we play I play in the, the wedding band and it's uh, I have another crazy job um, programming bell towers. You know, like you go to a church and they sometimes they have like the sets of like the carillon bells that yeah. play tunes and stuff. Yeah. Somebody's got to do that. So every once in a while I'm doing that, too. So it's like I have so many different uh, outlets for that creativity. And I have other interests, too. I mean, I love to, to you know, goof around with electronics and, you know, goof around with the computer. And I teach a, a course at Cincinnati State. Uh, it's basically pro tools, uh, mixing and editing. And I've been redesigning that course to try and be able to, to do it online. Cause it's a little tricky teaching people how to use a piece of software, you know, when you're not in the same room with them. Right. So now, all, all of those things get me through the day. <laughs> I'm sure. And now, uh, real quick, cause I'm curious if it's the same thing as my job. Uh, do you, so you say you program bell towers. Does that, Involve uh, industrial computers, uh, PLCs, programmable logic computers. A little, a little bit. They have uh, the company that I work with is called Verdon, and they have proprietary uh, hardware that plays plays the bells. Basically, just takes like an event list and then fires off, you know, the the um, clangers, <laughs> you know, ringing each one of the bells, the yep. pneumatic uh, pistons that are like that are ringing them. So it's it's just taking music and trying to make that you know, work in that, on that situation, considering they might not all, they might not have any black keys on their particular bell tower, or they might have just one octave, or it may have three octaves, or they might be missing, you know, one particular note that's in Santa Claus is coming to town, you know, and so you have to figure out where to put that note because they don't have that one. Hmm. Yeah. Cause, uh, that's funny. I work in, uh, I work on control systems, uh, at a poop plant wastewater plants for my county so my job definitely would apply in that sense that'd be yeah. cool it takes no, your they, music and and it's it, it automates it yeah and they did well it's not, i'm not writing the music i'm sort of adapting you know kind of favorite tunes christmas songs and and for church bells there's you know uh the religious music and stuff like that but they also they have also done um this company they do like glockenspiel which is, you know, like when the, the little German boy and girl come out, the little automatons and hit the <laughs> bell and stuff like called. that. 
I think so. <laughs> Never knew that. And so they've done stuff like that, and that's all programmed through the PLC with, you know, uh, the timing of it and, like, the scheduling of it and all the rest. Right. Yeah, that's wow. That's uh, pretty interesting. Going back to an earlier thing you were talking about when you walk through the tester um, section or area where everyone's like hearing your music again and again. That made me. That's funny that you just brought up Christmas because uh, I know this just doesn't apply to my job. It applies to whoever shops a lot. But I used to work when that before I moved uh, out of Massachusetts. I worked at a company, uh, Polar Beverages, and I delivered seltzer water and soda. And uh, grocery stores from eight to fourteen hours uh, every day. And when it was Christmas time, uh, I wanted to go a little postal after the third day because oh, every yeah. store would have the same fucking loop. Yes. Did you feel? I'm sorry to put you on the spot with this kind of probably rude question, but did you feel like you were the Christmas machine or something? No, this the struggle's real, man. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's that's always been the challenge for me for for video game music because there's a lot of there's a lot of tools that are available to make the music more interactive but sometimes there's not the budget or the time uh, needed to to do that I work on another game called uh, Crowfall which is I think just uh, got into beta uh, recently and so I was writing music with that and we did a little bit of uh, some of the interactive stuff but when you're writing you know just sort of it's called wallpaper music which is kind of uh, a, a negative term for it, but it's really just like, I mean, there's nothing interactive about this music. It's not reacting to the, the state of the game other than switching tracks when you go into battle. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, uh, you're, you're always fighting, you know, somebody's going to be hearing this a jillion times. And it's like, that's, that's a good thing because, you know, your ideas kind of get cemented in people's heads. And I've, uh, I've heard from lots of kids that have, that played the game like 10 years, like Wizard 101, 10 years ago. And it's like they'll never forget that music for as long as they live. And I, I always go, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say, that. I'm really sorry, eh? <laughs> I know that's a really popular game. I saw like 40 million players. Yeah. Good uh, sub- God. Subscribers to the game. I think it got up to, it might be up to 50 by now it's hard to keep track of, of all that stuff, but yeah, there's, and there's a giant community online with it. And sometimes if I'm feeling down, I'll, you know, Google my name and, you know, find like memes that people have made of my music on Reddit. You know, if this guy's like, you know, I heard that, you know, this theme in, in wizard one one you know, make me feel like this. And I was just like, ah, oh, that's, that's nice. So it, it works in a positive, <laughs> but it's definitely like when you hear people say, it's like, ah, oh, I just turned, I turn the music off and listen to my own music. Like I'll go on Twitch to, to watch people playing it just to see <laughs> kind of what's going on. And they're playing their own music. And I'm like, I always count that as like, ah, okay, we lost one, you know, but it's like, I'll get it, you know, we'll get them back. But I don't blame them because it's like so many hours of listening to that music. I mean, maybe they've just heard it as much as they possibly can hear it. And they're, they want to move on. I completely understand that, but it's kind of <laughs> my job to try and make the thing. It's like, you don't give the player control of like the, the, the color palette of the game. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like somebody's deciding the art style and not the player can't change that, you know, based on their tastes. So, and, and it's like film scoring, you know, it's like the film score is going to be what the film score is going to be. You can't kind of re recreate that, but, um, yeah, it's, I, I'm always trying to, I'm fighting for that one person on Twitch who it's like, I can get them to play the score instead of, you know, their own playlist. Mm. 
Mm. Brent, Brennan, you got anything you want to add to this? No, it just sounds like tester syndrome all over again. It's like, <laughs> you know, you you, you got to be okay with losing them if they've already given it, you know, 400 hours. <laughs> so just to name a few games for those that might be like, holy shit, I played that. Um, games that you were on, and I believe these are all through Acclaim. Um, NFL QB Club 2001, All-Star Baseball 2002, the two Turok games which was Turok Evolution and Turok 3, uh, All-Star Baseball 2005. This one I thought was a little bit big, Gladiator, Sword of Vengeance. And then you did one called Pinball Hall of Fame. Like, these are so different from each other. You haven't even gotten to my Hello Kitty titles. Is that a thing? That's a thing. NBA Jam is <laughs> one of them, too. NBA Jam, yeah, 2004. I, I did not know you did Hello Kitty. I let's did. let's let's pause there real quick because is, is NBA Jam not Hello Kitty? Sorry, is NBA Jam the one that you worked with Bootsy Collins on? Yep, yep. Oh, that's awesome. Now, how, how, tell tell me a little bit about that. And for those of you who might not know, uh, Bootsy Collins did not quite make my list of favorite bassists, but uh, he played with James Brown, and the man knew his way around that instrument. Yeah, Parliament. He's he's kind of funky. He's a he, he's he's a dude. Uh, he's a local cat, so it's like he he shows up at a lot of you know shows downtown and events. And uh, somebody knew him to call him for this, and they I think they originally wanted him. He came in and he did uh, this is NBA Jam 2004, and he came in and did the there's different eras of of basketball. I think they went from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, 80s, and then you know current day. I guess at that time it was in the 90s sometime, but. Um, and then they had like a different announcer do it in like the style of a basketball announcer from the fifties, you know, he's got, he's bouncing the ball. Oh, he's throwing the peach basket up. I, I don't know what they said back in the fifties, but that kind <laughs> Patrick, of, idea. he's so much better at impressions. Than- <laughs> he's a professional Brennan. <laughs> Ham is what is the word you're searching for. <laughs> Um, so, so, and like that, that era, the, the visuals are in black and white and there's like a little green filter applied to it. And then you went through the sixties and then for the seventies, Bootsy was the announcer. So he was doing his whole, you know, Bootsy thing, you know, seventies funkadelic kind of uh, spin on, on doing it. I'm not, I'm not going to imitate him cause I've been caught out doing it and it's like, it's so embarrassing. So, um, so he came in to do the commentary and then it was like, hey, so I'm writing this, you know, track for the intro. And I kind of wrote it, you know, hoping, hoping that he would do something on it. And it's like, here it is. He's like, oh, OK, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah, I could, I could do something on that. So he threw his vocals on it and he had a uh, dude that he worked with uh, put a rap on top of it. And it was like, OK, I never worked with the guy in the studio, but it's like I've worked with Bootsy Collins. I co-wrote the track with Bootsy Collins. It's pretty fucking cool. It's a bullet on the resume, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got lots of I got lots of name droppy stories like that. <laughs> so an, another name that popped out at me was uh, Michael Giacchino, um, and I was I was talking to Patrick, and in case somebody doesn't know who that is, uh, he wrote the music for Lost. He wrote the music for the newer Star Trek movies, um, for The Incredibles, for Monsters Incredibles. Inc. Yep, uh, and you know. A hundred other, you know, really excellent movie soundtracks. He's fantastic. Uh, he did some of the new Star Wars stuff too. Oh, that's right. I think I did know that. Um, so how how was working with him? 
Well, again, it's one of those bullet points that's, you know, it's meant to uh, encourage a conversation like we're having right now. Uh, I had a phone call with him. And then I think I talked with uh, his assistant maybe three or four times talking about, you know, what to do. Uh, we were, it was for the game Alias, which he, the TV show that he wrote the uh, score for. And it was kind of earlier on in his career. He did that and he had done, uh, I'm going to embarrass myself by not being remember uh, the title. It's like a old World War II dogfighting uh, game, I think. I, I hadn't played it. Anyway, so it's like he had, he had, he knew what video game composing was about. Now it differed from, um, doing film scoring and stuff, but had a conversation with him where we kind of talked about the idea of it and his, uh, he wrote the music that was, that was played in the levels. And then I wrote the cinema score for the game. So anytime it broke down into a cinema, I tried to like pull out my, uh, Giacchino chops and write like him and like you write like he wrote for alias, which is a great challenge. I, I don't know if you would say that I did a great job with it, but he was, he, I think he was working on lost at the time actually. And so he was, I think trying to move away from the kind of, uh, like nineties or early two thousands, like techno stuff that I think was an alias. And he was trying to kind of get more orchestral. And I, I think he was like, well, that's what I was writing like back then, but maybe, you know, a little more orchestral. It's like, Oh, okay. I kind of like the, uh, the other style that we were writing in, but yeah. So I, so I basically worked under his, uh, advisement uh in as much as he had time because dude is busy <laughs> i was gonna say if if that was if that was me i would definitely not only make that a bullet point list but i would i would probably bring it up and i talked to him you know a couple times <laughs> talk to him a couple times try not to be too impressed <laughs> who wants to touch me <laughs> um Let's talk about, included, you know, we're saying who wants to touch me, so I feel like Hello Kitty is obviously the next subject we should talk about. Well, if there's no uh, My Little Pony game, I guess that's where we have to go. <laughs> I was so curious where you were going with that segue. <laughs> that's why I shut Some, the hell up. <laughs> sometimes I reach for reach for something that just isn't there. Uh, my, little po- my Little Pony. I've never <laughs> written for My Little Pony. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Hello Kitty. Uh, friend, a friend was doing a, let's see, Hello Kitty Cruisers. I wrote the music for Hello Kitty Picnic. I recorded the dialogue, recorded and edited the dialogue for, um, uh, the, the girl that did the, the dialogue was named Whitney Zabo and she's a fantastic local voice actress. And it was, it was amazing just going into the studio with her and going, all right. Uh, so everything up about 15 octaves and, you know, really cute go and she <laughs> was amazing the only thing i had to tell her to do was like okay the, the pitch is dropping as you're getting tired so crank it back up there again and she'd go hello kitty picnic so that was fun but i also got to write the music uh that happened for that so it's one of those my, my friend always says a gig is a gig or gig spelled backwards is gig so you know a writer writes you know, you you just have to get out there and whatever the job is, you know, there's, there's slow months at the Everhart household that, you know, it's good to be able to fill in some of those blanks with other stuff coming in. Sure. And uh, I'm sure not everyone could say that they wrote music for a Hello Kitty game. I didn't even know those uh, existed. Uh, oh, <laughs> man, there's the a ton audience, of those. You're not the target audience, man. I'm not so. sure you're supposed to know that those exist. <laughs> Although um, I think you could probably put some really cute outfits together, Patrick. Um, yeah, everyone would laugh at me, but I'm used to that. 
So oh, Kitty's wearing a Led Zeppelin shirt. Yes. And then I noticed that you did a casino game, which is pretty funny because it's the Hard Rock uh, Casino, which I'm right near Atlantic City. Yeah. And uh, they just came out with a Hard Rock Casino a uh, year ago. Um, I like going there because I love looking at all the neat shit that they got. Seeing seeing some Beatles attire and stuff and just, you know, saying, hmm, wonder what would happen if I tried to wear it. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> no, so, I've done, I did some music for uh, like a pinball game. And there have been some – I've met some people that are just like, you know, don't want to be known for that, that, that thing that they did. And it's like, I, frankly, I just like – I like writing in different styles. And if I can – I can do Hello Kitty and I can do, you know, Crowfall and I can do a pinball game. You know, it's like it's all a lot of I just I get to write music and it's not you kind of have to divorce yourself a little bit from the the game itself as Crow and Perfect Weapon taught me. Uh, you know, that the games are terrible and I'm like, yeah. But there's a there's a there's one review out there that says the one redeeming feature is that the music's okay. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you got to take responsibility for what you can take responsibility for. Do you read your, are there reviews of, are, is that a thing? Like reviews on uh composed games? Not as much for the, the ones that I'm doing now. Cause they've, they've just been out for so long, but a lot of times, well, yeah, back in the day, it's like you had the, the PlayStation magazine and whatever, and they're doing reviews of it. And they always break it down into, you know, gameplay and story and, Audio True. is always like the last little, you know, tiny three sentence paragraph for the most right. part. Everything was sounded pretty good. Um, but so, I mean, not as much anymore with the stuff that I'm doing, but I do like to go out and, and hear what people think about it. And it's, you know, you want to please everybody, but, uh, at some point you're just going, okay, well, that guy's clearly, you know, drunk. And I, I, I don't know what that one's talking about. I mean, it's not for, not everybody's going to like it. So I get it. That's true. I used to, be a collector of a few video game magazines and I just enjoyed reading how things were made. I wish that they dove into that a little bit more. Um, have you, so you still compose for video games. Mm -hmm. Uh, what have you noticed and take this anyway, any direction you want? What have you noticed from the nineties when you started to today? So that's what a 30 year gap. I guess depending on what year. You didn't have to put it like that, but sure. <laughs> I mean, you're a young man. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, that's about, I like that one better. Uh, what do I think? Of, I, I, I mean, I'm blessed to be able to, you know, still do the thing that I like and still have the stuff that I write be, you know, like I, I still think my voice is kind of, you know, relevant enough to be in, you know, some of the stuff. Um, and it's fun. And it's like, I, I have some kids, you know, email me every once in a while. And it's like, I want to, I want to do this. And this one kid grew up listening to wizard one one And it's like, that's why he's doing, you know, music while he's studying uh, music now. And it's like, th that's cool. I mean, just to be able to have that kind of impact on, uh, impact on like any, that anybody's listening to is just, you know, super fr flattering. It's hard to believe it's one of those. I, I can't believe I get to do this. You know, and it's like it's gotten, you know, it's what I do. So it's like it's not uh, I don't wake up and just like am bowled over by by it. But it's like every once in a while, like now it's like my, my 
you know, my mom's like, you're being interviewed tonight. It's like, do you have a new job? And I'm like, well, no, somebody, you know, he wants to do, he's got, you know, podcast and, and she's like, for, for your music. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I I guess that's cool. So, you know, there's so many things out there in the world that it's like, I think there's going to be, you know, everybody's got their little, can have a piece of it without feeling like they're, you know, on top of the world. I hear you. I'm a 31 year old man. I still got my N64 and that Turok. I got my Turok games, and I, I mean, no, that's why I uh, seeked you out, and uh, I was like, holy shit, he's on Twitter, and he replied to me. That's neat. Like it's weird. The whole, just like when I was a kid, I remember I had a PS2, and there was a internet adapter. It was an external piece to the PS2 that you had to buy, and the game, the game I had was SOCOM Navy SEALs. Mm And I was like, this is neat. I got a, head f- a headset, and I could talk to the NPCs, and they, they're pretty smart. I thought they were for back then. And the, sh- the internet connection was shit. Yeah. But nowadays, I'll go on my phone, and the, the uh, processing, uh, the, the, you know, the processor on it is just like, it blows probably the PS2 out of the water. It's insane. It blows spacecraft. <laughs> Things that have gone into space out of the water. Right. Yes. The uh, the first space spacecraft for sure. That's that's crazy to think about. Yeah. And I've seen. Have you seen the uh, program that was written for that? Because I, I saw pictures. It was like a group of women that wrote it. Um, and if I'm wrong, please uh, forgive me and don't email me that I'm an idiot because I'm I'm just a simple man. And uh, you've got enough of those. Yeah, you know. So the program that I saw a picture of, it was just as tall as this woman. The programmer, and she's you know average height like five feet something inches, and it, it, it's just it's insane what programs uh, were like back then. Uh, I used to be a tester for my first job in New Jersey for this company that worked in radio frequency controllers. And when I asked when I started there, what do we do? They said we do literally anything from making the uh, controllers that. Had those little bubbles and Nike shoes, like the sneakers, mm-hmm. a little, from those to bags at hospitals to this one laser. That real quick story is when they were okay. So I'm in a big, massive warehouse. I guess is the best way to paint this picture. Huge open room. I'm a tester. You can see the assembler, the assembly crew. You can see the engineers. Like there's no walls between us. So on the side near me. And this is like three, four hundred foot wide building. Uh, you can see these these outside company people working on a laser, and it's pointed at a brick. It's a it's a laser that will pierce through a brick, and there's nothing behind it. And behind them are testers and assembly people. <laughs> Someone had to say to these very smart people, "That's a laser. That's not like a one of those kinds that you trick a cat. That will kill right. someone." Yeah. <laughs> Put a real so, good burn on you. The reason why I bring this up is because I worked on things as old as uh, 2000 to when I worked there in 2015. The circuit boards, the components, the architecture of the hardware, it was so weird how different it was over a span of 15 years. <sighs> and it's real interesting because I, I went to school for computer electronics and I like looking at the insides of 
Um, I wouldn't dare do it with like a modern console because God, I cannot imagine. I want to understand it, but like looking at an NES or you know N64, it's just so neat yeah. how it's constructed. And thinking of video games, like you said earlier in the conversation, that a, a guy made this game, programmed it when it started team. Like there was one guy that terrible example. One guy programmed ET for the uh, Atari. Mm-hmm. Like can't have one or two or three people program a game and have it be okay you might i'm gonna throw out you might but i doubt you can have a three people make a big game yeah. and this, my, my cousin um works for i don't know if i'm allowed to say who but up in massachusetts he works for a video game company i don't know what his title is yeah fuck it he he worked on that game game of thrones um mm-hmm. that came out on the uh phone um, I don't know much about it, uh, but I just picked his brain because I'm curious um, how all that world works because I, I like the behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And he, I, I said, just hypothetically speaking, I don't want to make the game, but if you were to make a MMORPG, um, h- how would that work? And he goes, let's put it this way. If you're new, you want to start with an RPG. Reason being is because that's a, a log cabin. An MMORPG is like building a skyscraper. You, do you have the money for that? Do you have the manpower for that? I'm like, yeah. No, I don't. Well, I don't really know if this all has a question, but I, I just find it fascinating. And I've never really talked to a composer that's done video games. Have you noticed, like, I guess the size of companies with testers, with uh, game developers with the behind the scenes guys from say the crow game to the pinball game. Like it, do you notice a, a big difference or do the sizes of teams grow um, as the technology advances? It, it depends on the, uh, the kind of company and the kind of game they're making, obviously, mm-hmm. because like the big, you know, MMO stuff, it's like, you know, there's server issues and, and, uh, people that, you know, actually take care of the community and listen to, you know, people's complaints or where they're having problems or, you know, doing bug reporting and stuff like that. And it's just wickedly complicated. Um, but then you get down to like for some mobile games, I'm working on a mobile game now and I, I think the team size is maybe 15 people all in. And that's, that's everybody from, you know, I'm doing music. There's a sound guy and there's, if you guys do an animation, there's probably a programmer too or two. Um, I have a friend named uh, Jules Watchem who his uh, company's called Atui, and they did like Chicken Wiggle, uh, and he's got some other like kind of classic uh, sort of side scroller games, and he, he releases like they're on the Switch Marketplace and stuff like that. And it's like those games are usually, I mean, if you want to do it enough, you know, one guy can act, can actually make those kind of games. Um, when it gets into like just the massive 3d stuff and then, you know, you need people that really understand, uh, modeling and programmers that know how to, you know, pull off amazing tricks with stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I, I'm barely a part of that process. So I've gotten to kind of sort of witness, you know, as much of it as I can. And it's really fascinating. I, you know, I just sit in the programmer's you know, office and listen to them, you know, talk about, you know, whatever memory leak. And I'm like, I have no idea what that is, but this is, you know, this is fascinating. So I like to see how the sausage is made too. I mean, it's interesting to me just to, 
to to go sit. I I toured uh, Crowfall, Arcraft Entertainment in Austin. I went down there and finally got to see what they're doing. And they're like that game is just so complex, and the tools they're using are incredible that they've programmed, and their their proprietary stuff is amazing. Like it's just it's a really super sophisticated engine. And it's like I toured around these guys, and they're super nice, and they're like. Now check this out. These are voxels and you know, you can do this and there's different states that this can, you know, this level can be in. And I nodded a lot. And you know, when they <laughs> finished explaining, I'm like, that is effing amazing. Thank you for showing me that. I hope there's no test because you know, wasn't really following it. Just a musician, you know, dumb it down a shade for me, doc. <laughs> Brennan, jump in, bud. I'm just thinking that's like, you know, my, um, my, my brother-in-law, um, works with, uh, planes and he'll, you know, he'll, he'll talk about something super complex and I'll, I'll hit him back with something like, yeah, I'll explain Coltrane harmony to me or something like that. <laughs> Bet you can't. Um, <laughs> you want to have a contest? See you know, while we're swinging manhood around, you know, <laughs> ever heard of Schoenberg? <laughs> so well, you're well, what, what grade do you teach, Brennan? Uh, K through five, so Schoenberg doesn't come up that often. Thank Not God. <laughs> I really think twelve tone rows should be part of the the syllabus of yeah. a normal elementary school. Uh, Patrick, I don't know if you're familiar with Schoenberg, but oh my God, would you ever hate it? <laughs> I'm not. I'm just laughing because it sounds funny. So I'm mirroring your uh, emotions. <laughs> German names are funny. There will be a test, by the way. <laughs> I will fail that. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I mean, for the for the most part, I I had a uh, you know four year uh, bachelor education and then a uh, spaced my masters over the course of two years so that I could uh, teach kindergarten or well fifth grade level music theory. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't break out the uh, big guns too often. Although I've always, I've always thought though that like the when I was in fifth grade, I remember them trying to teach us like with the Norton scores and it's like you know here's a Bach chorale. And I'm like, you know, why wouldn't you start with, you know, the Beatles or or something that like makes sense to to kids? Like, here's music that you like listening to. This is why it's interesting to listen to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, we we don't do Bach chorales in fifth grade. That that would be um, I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do it in high school either. Not that they weren't, you know, amazing pieces of music. It's just, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily, that's not, how many people are getting jobs in classical, you know, orchestral music? I can probably count it on, you know, two hands. But whereas, yeah. like, there's so many different outlets for music, and there's so many different things that music theory is good, you know, to know about. No, I mean, as far as music theory, and again, I won't dive deep because nobody but me and you is interested in this at all, but, um, I mean, ending fifth grade is pretty much, you know, introducing everything up to uh, all your note values up to 16th, mm-hmm. uh, knowing what dots do, uh, being able to read bass clef and basic, basic harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not it's just yeah, it's just not that's that complex or but, you know, that's, again, why I do piano lessons on the side, because I do get the opportunity to uh, flex that muscle every so often. And it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. You know, my um, besides education, my primary major was uh, uh, jazz uh, composition and arrangement. Um, so it's it's kind of fun to be able to use that information in some capacity or another. Mm-hmm. 
I, I'm, right. I'm just going to ask you more questions about music education, but about it. <laughs> we need to get back to the, the bloody, the bloody, uh, half torsos. Oh, only if you what want. Do you guys, okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm like I said, I, I didn't really have a chance to, to listen to what do you guys normally, what are you normally talking about? Nothing. Okay. Just, <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to interrupt running. So basically so not music education, uh, we, we taught our whole goal is to, learn and have an audience learn about the creators behind the art that they make the denominator in almost everyone is that it has something to do with horror or uh dark fiction and i said well Turok 3 is uh i'd I'd qualify that as dark fiction so uh yeah i liked it and fuck it let's talk to them all right that's my touchstone okay good i know where i'm coming in now do you um happen to like horror films uh, I, you know what I did like back in the day and it's like, I'm horribly out of touch with it now. I have a, a four year old daughter and it's so obviously, you know, we're mostly watching Disney channel right now, but, uh, I, I liked them back in the day. They got kind of, you know, some of the extreme stuff. It's weird when you become a parent, like how that, that sort of tweaks a little bit where it's like, uh, I remember being younger and like, you know, finding this kind of angsty stuff you know really you know fascinating and interesting and then there's i think a certain point as you're getting older where it's like oh that's just getting uncomfortable you know i was inside a hospital and saw something like that and it was it was a little too real but it's like i i always loved it when i was a kid i mean you know i watched all the nightmare on elm streets and uh hellraisers and stuff like that did you ever uh, or do you listen to a film and say I could do better, or maybe I like that I'm going to use that for my own piece. Well, that would be stealing and wrong. So <laughs> maybe uh, influenced is a better word. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'll go on the record and say I'll steal it if I think it'll work in my situation. There's so many. I mean, you know, that idea, you know, those three notes that the, the guy's using is not, you know, isn't unique, but it's like there's there's always these great ideas out there, and it's if anything I've wrote, if somebody can take like an, a germ of an idea that I didn't really fully develop and uh continue to to kind of make it work better i'm like you know that's fantastic i mean kids have done like remixes of of wizard 101 stuff Hmm. you know and and every once in a while i hear you know something crazy a friend of mine wrote the music for uh the mission uh mission impossible game on n64 back in the day and a classical guitarist just played uh posted him playing it on youtube and it was like it's amazing it's like really really well done it was really good writing and then the arrangement that the guy did i mean that's just it's impossible not to feel uh just flattered that somebody's taking an idea that that you've done and sort of built on it like that so yeah i'll i'll i hear things that i want to use but it's usually not like you know it's not that melody that i'm interested in it's maybe that tonality Mm -hmm. which is not something that i don't feel like i'm stepping on anybody's toes or, or stealing any of their you know hard fought ideas Going along that uh, road of films, and this would definitely be appropriate. I, I recommended this to Brennan. Uh, one of the screen, one of the writers on this film called Mirror Mask was Neil Gaiman. Um, it's a fun UK-based um, fantasy, and the soundtrack. I like buying soundtracks. I really love uh, on CDs. I, I still collect CDs, and I don't know if you guys have heard of Ian Bellamy. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, but the soundtrack on that is pretty fun. It's it's different. Um, 
but Mirror Mask is definitely a film that I would say maybe check out sometime. Uh, and the other composer I wanted to talk about was James Horner. I'm a big fan of his Braveheart soundtrack and the Titanic soundtrack. So I, I was curious if either one of you had a you know favorite film composer besides John Williams that we already covered. Damn it. <laughs> Gabriel Yared, who did the score, I think, for um, Talon and Mr. Ripley. That's like one of the creepiest stories, uh, like films that I think I've watched just because it's like it's so grounded in, you know, kind of somebody just getting taught caught. To me, that movie was like so much about like the knot in your belly that I remember from like when I was 15 or something. And I, you know, broke a car window and tried to, you know, run away and knowing that you know oh my god that's out there somewhere and it's like it might come back to me like you're gonna get in trouble that kind of feeling and and that his stuff like you know perfectly encapsulates that for me um alan silvestri who did all the back to the future stuff was Mm. amazing he also wasn't that experienced as a composer when he did the first back to the future and i'm like damn you could have fooled me because that's such a perfect (laughs) score and what a movie to do yeah and of course danny elfman like Mm. just sort of created a lot of the genre that I sort of play around with and dark fantasy and like the Batman score and all that stuff is like super creepy. The Edward Scissorhands, uh, nightmare before Christmas. I, I, I have to throw Hans Zimmer out there. I feel like he is the, as much as John Williams is still working, I feel like he's the closest thing that, you know, the, the 2000 teens have to 1970s and 1980s, John Williams. Yeah. Um, and, whether you know they are technically proficient or not i i absolutely love what he did with the uh pirates of the caribbean soundtracks yeah um the the first three anyway uh after that it was just kind of it, it was recycling you know you're, I don't, I don't you're know. good to even count like pull the three together i think i get really foggy on them after like one and a half well, the first I'm one was a, amazing <laughs> As far as soundtracks go, um, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the movies, and up until the third one, they were still right. He was still writing, you know, original themes for characters and situations, and even ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, like you watched the fourth one, and they would use the the theme for a character that was killed off in the third one for just a random situation. It's like, yeah. okay, we're recycling at this point. Um, dude definitely collected a paycheck on it, you know, and just remixed his <laughs> own stuff. I, but, I think there was a lot of people, my understanding of that for at least the first one was that there's a ton of different people who wound up working on it. And he was like the name that kind of provided some of those things. And then some other people came in to help with, with the, with the other stuff. But yeah, that, that score is amazing. Inception is one of my, uh, that's a great brilliant one. and yeah. rain man from Hans Zimmer. Like, Back speaking of the eighties, that was one of my favorite scores. Kind of a more pop uh, score, but also didn't, solid. Didn't Zimmer do Interstellar too? Because that's a really good one. He's done. He's he's been involved, I think, with all of Christopher Nolan's movies, or at least all the recent ones. And, and he's, I feel like he's knocked most of them out of the park. Um, it's especially kind of the way I'm thinking of like Dunkirk and The Dark mm-hmm. Knight. Um, mm. his ability to just kind of like crescendo tension in his soundtracks. It's, it's nuts. Um, he's, he's and a then, real good, he's like a sound designer composer too, where it's like, he's really 
there's so many layers to what the stuff that he's doing. He has so many techniques about, all right, so the strings are doing this, but we're putting a synth, you know, sub bass in underneath that to that's like so far above kind of where I'm normally thinking when I'm writing. Yeah. And I love, I loved in the, um, uh, I can't remember the name, but the third Batman movie, um, where, where he went really percussion heavy, mm-hmm. um, even for him, very, very percussion heavy. And it was, it, it was cool because he could have, uh, again, kind of mimicked the success of the Dark Knight soundtrack, but instead he kind of took it in a different direction to match the yeah. tone of the film, a little bit more raw, um, a little bit more almost kind of primal. Um, the other composer I'll throw out, and I'm going to probably butcher his name, is uh, Alexandre Desplat. Um, and he's he's done so many good movie soundtracks, but the one of my favorites is the very last Harry Potter movie. Mm-hmm. Um where he took John Williams score and just it kind of added, you know, a whole new layer to it. Um, they added a brand, you know, all the way there in movie number eight, they added a new theme and it was, it was very haunting. It was, it was gorgeous. And I, you know, I really thought that whole, uh, you've watched seven movies up to that point, you know, the main themes and they managed to do something or he managed to do something new with that. That was, really really cool and then he's done like you know a hundred other movies that <laughs> are all very notable and you know excellent as well yeah these guys are, are scary talented like even getting into you know a hundred and fifty thousand feet of them it's just like oh my god they just have a whole there's a whole structure there and it's like they work with these guys and they know this guy doing that it's like i would be so intimidated going into you know a feature film like that with the kind of schedules that they have and the kind of budgets that they have and like how much you're burning having the, you know, London symphony orchestra in a studio for 15 minutes to try and record your score, you know, and you transpose something incorrectly and it's like, you've just spent $200,000. The best part of orchestration is, you know, French horn does this and <laughs> this is an octave, this is an E flat, but no, you're right. And the, t- the time crunch, um, so, you know, I was thinking only in terms of, We've shot all this and we need the soundtrack done in X number of weeks. But like you said, even we've, we've booked the London Symphony Orchestra for 45 minutes ago um, <laughs> to, to produce anything of quality. Never mind, um, you know, what these guys come out with, what these people come out with. Uh, it's just it's insanity. Yeah, I, I do really like that. Um, you're talking about the themes coming in. I like when a movie score. It, it's such an old way to write. And I mean, it goes back to me, uh, to, to Star Wars, where it's like everything has a theme and it's like, you know, you can it, it's just a really great way to kind of develop a shorthand for like it's like, you know, when these two characters are meeting, you can take their two themes and see what they you know, how, how you could blend them together and, and see kind of what happens there when uh, Anakin's theme uh, from the prequels kind of turns into uh the the darker uh, empire theme you know in the at the end of the prequels it's like it's fascinating so i i like when i really like when there's a theme i don't necessarily care that it's like it doesn't have to be so literal that every time that person's on the screen that theme has to be playing but it's it's a really great way to just kind of have something some sort of touchstone that you can you know kind of build on in a scene <laughs> absolutely and i'll 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 throw uh Prokofiev on that list 
Um, no, I'm, I'm a sucker for that too. I love that. You know, like the, um, one of my favorite John Williams soundtracks is Superman. Um, just the theme is so absolutely iconic. Um, and uh, as much as I love newer superhero movies, most of them, even though the hero might have a theme, it's not, you're not walking out of the theater humming it, you know, with the exception of maybe the Avengers. Um, they're they're good but most uh, okay if if i'm not incorrect weren't didn't in um uh infinity war didn't they use a lot of the uh the theme from um guardians of the galaxy i I thought that theme was from guardians because i remember watching guardians and being like this is a really great theme and then i heard it in infinity war before the guardians were like even because they don't come in until like halfway through that film i think and I, I heard the theme and I was like, wait a minute. And I'm like, okay, but somebody went, this theme is great. Let's just use it everywhere. <laughs> they did have a cool theme. I don't, I don't know that it was quite as like memorable as a Superman, but it was yeah. a really interesting theme. Um, the, the beauty of like an end game and an infinity war is they had so many characters and so many movies to build up with. They, mm-hmm. they probably didn't even, you know, write a score for it. They just, you know, uh, <laughs> sampled hits. everything else. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they made a greatest hits album and played it all greatest the way hits through. Of Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't believe I didn't bring this up, but I was just watching before we talked, we're recording this. I watched uh, Jurassic Park cause I was. Scrolling through Netflix, like, oh, nothing's on. And I'm like, oh, well, let's watch this movie for the hundredth time because I fucking love that movie. But John Williams, his soundtrack, uh, his, the main theme in that, I love it. It's one of my favorites. And again, I can't believe I didn't think of that earlier. If you, if you meet like kids of sort of my generation, kids that are now not kids, you know, they go back to, to Star Wars and ET and it's like newer, I think younger people like yourself, you know, a lot of, a lot of them were first introduced to his work through uh, Jurassic Park. So it's like that's a lot of people's like, oh, man, that was just so it's so evocative and so like nostalgic. Just so kind of puts you there, which is weird that that's what you remember about Jurassic Park. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's like my childhood. <laughs> if and me, if me, people ate my childhood, I guess. Me and Brandon, <laughs> were, very good point. <laughs> me and Brandon were talking about Jurassic Park and uh both fans of the first one. I can't speak for him on the other two. I like the other two, but I've never seen the Chris Pratt ones, and I don't really give a shit to watch them. I love Chris Pratt. I just haven't seen him. I don't care to. Yeah, he's 19- amazing, and I like them in Guardians of the Galaxy. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, 1993 was the year that Hollywood perfected special effects and then forgot everything they knew about <laughs> it. I, I like the. Jurassic Park is the best example. And there was another one I saw recently that I I kind of I I guess I didn't realize it came out the same year, but it was the same thing, like very practical effects. And they look better than anything, you know, coming out now. Um, But I I mean, Jurassic Park is just that movie to hold up as like, this is how you do special effects. Like Mm -hmm. you you watch that movie. Holy shit. Twenty seven years later. um, And it's the the special effects are perfect you yeah. know not not pretty good like they're perfect well i got a few from uh that time uh that year hocus pocus was one uh nightmare before christmas mm-hmm. the sandlot tombstone days infused um there's others but those are pretty good examples the not the effects on all of them oh and it's the a good movie yeah 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 i, I love guess. tombstone <laughs> That was really good. Sorry, I was I was going back to you, you going. I don't want to see the Chris Pratt ones. I saw the first one, 
just because I was like, how the hell can you take the message of Jurassic Park, which is like, don't F with Mother Nature, <laughs> you know? And then, oh, look, they F with Mother Nature again. And look what happened. Like, it's just I don't understand how you tell try and tell that story again, because the story was about don't do this. And so every other story has just been about, OK, don't do that again. Well, they should really bring a T-Rex to a bigger city. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that, though, that, that question, though, has never been more relevant. You know, you watch Jurassic Park 2 and you're like, oh, my gosh, did you guys learn nothing? Don't reopen the park. Yeah. Jurassic Park 3, <laughs> don't go back to the damn island. Like, did you yeah. not learn anything? No. And we're living that now. Um, and then 2015 rolls around and they reopen the park again. Yeah. And they just keep reopening the park because we'll never not reopen the park. I mean, you got to reopen the park. <laughs> well, like, wow, what that, about, that got contemporary real quick. What about Crystal Lake? I mean, like, why is that campsite? <laughs> why is that whole place? I know that in one of the movies they like close it down, but if kids are just you know, seeing a bunch of dead bodies, I don't know, man. If I was the EPA, I'd be like, let's shut that shit down. <laughs> <laughs> Can we find another place for this camp? I, I, my favorite like thriller movies like that have always been ones that don't rely on that trope of like, you know, here's somebody doing something stupid so that, you know, you can stress out the audience and just like, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. I've always like, um, what was it called? The, uh, the arrival. What's that? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Jeremy Renner one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's like they meet the, the aliens and, I don't know what you do with spoilers, but it's like it was just so neat that like they, they trusted the audience to kind of go in and and figure things out, even though it was kind of a difficult sort of like Inception where it's like they weren't really holding your hand too much to like work your way through some of the difficult, more difficult plot elements. I think the director on I could be totally wrong here. I thought it was Denis Villeneuve. Um, and and he's definitely a director who trusts his audience. He did yeah. the. uh um, the newer Blade Runner movie, he'll, he did the Dune, I think he's doing the Dune movie that's coming out okay. at, at some point. Um, yeah, he is. Yeah, he's, he's definitely an intelligent director that makes his audience think as opposed to just handing them dinosaurs on a silver platter. My, um, I, w- I just want to bring up, I don't know if this is random, but I really enjoyed The Matrix. And when the first time my friend tried explaining it to me, he said, so it's about a world that's around you, but it's not really. I'm like, we don't even <laughs> smoke weed yet. What are you talking about? <laughs> I specifically remember going to see that movie for the I, I think I saw that movie like, you know, three or four times in the theaters. And it was like I it was one of the only films that I walked out just like going, you know, <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it's like, wow, that, you know, that would explain a lot. I mean, they're drawing on such classic, you know, um, like philosophical ideas and stuff. It was just such a cool primer for some of that basic philosophy for, you know, uh, knuckleheads like me. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to it. Um, I got one more question. You and your wife are in a wedding band. So when did that start and how's that? Because I've, I've been the videographer for a few weddings, and the last one I did, my wife was like, you got to do it. You're making like a few hundred per gig. I'm like, you know how much time I spend in editing this shit? Oh, and yeah. the last one I did, I'm pretty sure the wife was Brazilian. The other one was from a different country. I don't even want to guess because I'm not sure. But 
I got no list of what the fuck to expect. I thought there'd be a best man speech, a maid of honor speech. Nope. Uh, at one point, the bride and groom were on their knees, and some guy was. They was. They weren't speaking in English at any point. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, and there were two hours. I was held uh, up for two hours after, and to get my money, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so my experience with weddings are they're not fun to do. Always get paid up front, McDonough. <laughs> yeah, good call, man. It's a. Uh, I mean, it's like higher. Everything is higher stakes, right? That's why. You know, there's people that do flowers and there's people do that, that do, you know, wedding flowers and it's a whole different pay grade. Yeah. But it, in my experience, the, the wedding planner idea, like there is no wedding planner at most of these things. There might be a facility person that, you know, is kind of trying to keep everything to a, a schedule. My wife handles the schedule. She meets with the bride and groom and they go through the whole thing. Like, you know, what are you doing? Are you doing a bouquet toss? Are you, you know, do you want to do any special dances and all that kind of stuff? So it, it's, it gets less stressful the more kind of upfront and the more experience you have doing it. I mean, we basically kind of riff it now, just like, okay, this song always plays. And a lot of times the, um, the, the only thing, the only like critical thing I can say about it is that a lot of times the bride, mostly the bride, uh, sometimes the bride and groom, a lot of times the bride and the groom's families as well, where they, you know, they're getting in. They're not considering that this isn't really a party for the bride and groom. It's for the, you know, family and friends of the bride and groom. <laughs> so the bride and groom come in and like, you know, I love the Black Keys. Can you just play all their, you know, music? And it's like, no, <laughs> you know, it's great music, but, you know, yeah. it's not necessarily what everybody wants to hear. And it's like they go, you know, absolutely do not play any of the cheesy you know, wedding tunes, don't play, don't stop believing and don't play, you know, celebration or cool in the gang. And you're just like, okay, we'll try it. And then as soon as this isn't working, we're going back to plan B, our plan. And then they're like, okay, sure. That's fine. And you play a few tunes and it's like the dance floor is empty. Dance floor is empty. All right. Celebrate good times. <laughs> and everybody comes on the thing and it's like, it's, it's dumb, <laughs> you know, and it's overdone. It's cliche, but it's like, it it's, it's a cliche because of, you know, they're fun tunes and they, they work when you're, you know, just trying to let loose and have fun. Absolutely. I mean, we got a lot of good stories. It's, it's, it's fun doing it. Uh, we've been like, we met in that band. So we've been doing it for a long time. We started dating and the rest of the band was like, uh, are you sure this is a good idea? <laughs> Probably. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So one, one song you, if you could erase one song from existence, never have to play it again, what would you pick? Uh, brown eyed girl probably. Oh, okay. No, that no I, one take that, <laughs> I take that back. It's um um, dun dun dun, sweet Caroline. Yep. Okay. <laughs> that, that song that, drags so hard. Yeah. As uh Boston Red Sox fans, the guys have been <laughs> to those games live. Yeah. It's a big. It's a big thing here because uh, the Ohio State University, or Ohio State, or whatever school, like it's their. They've claimed it too. I can't believe how many schools have claimed, like how many areas have claimed that song. Well, that, that's just it. Is you know, and I, I, I'm putting myself out there saying it, but as a, as a really big Red Sox fan, it's just not that good a song. <laughs> so when you, you know, when you hear it 500 times, it's like okay, uh, over it. <laughs> yeah, and it's honestly, I can turn my head off to some pretty dumb music and just be like, okay, this is fun. You try and find, okay, this is what I like about this tune even though i don't particularly like that 
And there's tunes that I like listening to that I don't like playing and vice versa that I don't, you know, I don't like playing, but I shame on me, I guess. No, there's songs that, that just don't, you know, aren't, I, I would think that they'd be fun to play, but they aren't that fun to play. And songs that I hate listening to that are actually kind of interesting to play. Playing keyboards though, like I get to do, I'm not just playing piano. It's like the string part. And sometimes there's like a synth bass in there and there's sometimes there's horns in there. And I, I try and get all the sounds like I have an iPad and I have like another keyboard that's like with triggering sounds from other stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to do 15 things at once. Like, so if a song's boring enough, I'll just like start giving myself more things to do in that song. It's like, I think I hear an organ part in there. So, okay. <laughs> now at least it's, you know, challenging to myself. But I mean, you play the music over and over again. We try and learn new songs as we can, but we've found that, you know, if you learn like the song that's hot on the radio, it's like, it's probably not going to be usable in you know a year's time absolutely brendan any final questions no i would just say that's that that's one of my favorite lessons uh to teach if if i have a bass student is fills for that exact reason because there are too many bands out there that apparently just threw a bass into somebody's hand who didn't know what to do with it and said you are allowed to do yeah exactly you were allowed to do whole (laughs) notes and that is it um, and you know, teaching, teaching a young person to love this instrument is not possible if they have to wait five minutes every time they hit a note to do something else. So, yeah, sorry for the distant callback, but you're talking about your, uh, favorite harm, like harmonic bass players or, or melodic bass players. And I always think of flea, yep. uh, oh, the, stuff I love do with the chilies because his stuff is so, I mean, he's not, I, I read like interviews and stuff with them where he was like when he was a kid it was all just about you know faster and louder and and the normal kid stuff and then as he kind of matured he started getting into melodies and some of the stuff he does with the chilies is just beautiful melodic lines going on and then obviously paul mccartney is the other melodic bass player that i like listening to definitely um the one one of my favorite things about flea is because you know obviously as a bass teacher i've done a lot of red hot chili peppers um is should hope so (laughs) <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Um, he he puts a lot of thought into where he plays a note on his uh, on on the neck. Like yeah. you'll you'll see him playing um, a relatively high note on his lowest string just because of the tone he gets from yeah. playing it on the fifteenth fret versus playing it you know way back down um, near the headstock. Right. Um, and, and just that that thought and playing something in a much harder way just to uh affect the final outcome of the music like you mm-hmm. gotta appreciate that that's the the depth there's like okay so everybody thinks music is like well you're you know it's the key and the, the and there's so much like once you've learned the mechanics of you know how your instrument works there's so much more listening to do you know about like intonation if you're a singer or like a horn player like really getting into the intonation and like where that is. And, you know, sometimes you're going to want the third to be flat, you know, you're going to have to pull it down a little bit. Uh, and then where you're placing the notes, especially for bass players and drummers, you know, it's like getting the bass player and the, and the, and the drummer kind of locked together on that thing. That's my favorite part about it is like once we've learned a song and I'm not worried about, you know, do I remember what the chords are, but now it's like, okay, now I can listen to the drummer and like where he's placing that, that note and, try and do something with the guitar player so that we're not just like, you know, stepping on each other's feet constantly. Yeah. And it's, a, you just have to 
come to terms with the fact that it's a lifelong process. Um, I'm going to butcher the quote, but uh, I think it was Pablo Casal, the cellist, um, when he turned, I think it was 84, said something along the lines of, I think I'm just starting to get the hang of this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Next year, I'll have it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a a lot about art is like you you have to be it's it's too like I go back and listen to stuff that I wrote, you know, even a few years ago. And it's like it gets cringy just because you're like, I've I've learned so many things, you know, from there. It's like you don't have to be getting paid for it, but it's like your love of the thing needs to drive you to make it interesting or else it's just it's going to be kind of obnoxious, (laughs) you know, an obnoxious (laughs) career. If you're not trying new things and learning new things about the process along the way. Absolutely. Just get stuck on brown eyed girl. (laughs) Sweet Caroline. (laughs) Is there anything else that you want anyone to know or is there any, are there any final questions that you have for us, Nelson? Um, when, so do you guys, do you guys have product coming out? Uh, for books? Yeah. Or whatever. Um, no, I got two shorts published, and that's about it at the oh, moment. Where are they published? Uh, I can talk. I can message you uh, after this. Okay. Too shy to, to plug it, huh? Um. Oh no, it's through uh, Crystal Lake Publishing, and they are on two anthologies uh, on a format or a type of what do you what do you even call this, Brendan? Flash fiction. A flash fiction is just a. Uh, I don't know, 100 words to 1,200 words, 1,500. I don't know what the exact word count is, but they're short stories. They're shorter than a short story. Short, short, short stories. Short, short stories. Pretty short stories. Yep. Yep. Yeah. My favorite collection of short stories was uh, Stephen King's Skeleton Crew. Yep. Yes. That had the mist in it, and I was like, oh, that was a great short story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it had the the raft in it, too, which is... mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's the visuals on that one are not going to leave me anytime soon. <laughs> his, but it's because his characters are so good. Like, I mean, the stories are okay, and everybody like gets like down with the stories. But it's like you only care about those stories because he takes time actually developing characters. Yeah, he's definitely uh, good at what he does. That's that's for sure. Where can people follow you? Uh, YouTube. I've got a channel where I'm doing some um, kind of teardowns of some of the, the tracks that I've written. Um, mostly wizard 101 stuff. There's also a game called pirate 101 that I've done some of this for. Uh, I've also started, I wrote uh, music for a game called Vex a long time ago. It was one of my favorite projects. So I just started reconstituting those things and remixing those tracks a little bit, uh, and doing like a, a deep dive on those exploring just sort of the process a little bit more. So, if, I mean, if any of that's interesting to anybody, that's probably where you'll hear enough, you know, You'll hear way more than you ever wanted to about, you know, the the deeper st- into the deeper dive into the the process. Uh, well, you know, we could put that link on the show notes. That'd be cool. And uh, how about Twitter? Where can people follow you on there? It's just at Nelson Everhart, I think. E V E R H A R T. Brennan, have you heard of Buzz Book Expo 2020? I sure as hell hope so, because I'm about to tell you about it. <laughs> So uh, readers, book reviewers, podcasters, librarians, booksellers, and lovers of great scary books, by the time you hear this, it's going to be Thursday the 20th, and you've got two days to prepare yourself because Buzz Book Expo is just around the corner. 
Buzzbook Expo is a live streaming event in which publishers will be announcing all the great new horror fiction releases they have to offer through the coming year. There's going to be interviews, Q&As, presentations, book cover reveals, and more from all of your favorite horror publishers, and it is all for free. You can spend two days immersed in exciting book talk from publishers and authors alike, and it takes place, like I said, this coming Saturday, August 22nd, into Sunday the 23rd. And you can find out more, including links to the expo, at marysangi.wordpress.com slash buzz-book-expo-2020. Hope to see you there. Thank you, Brennan, as always, for being my co-pilot, sir. And Nelson, thank you so much for giving us your time, almost two hours. Appreciate that, man. Uh, I'm a teacher, man. I can talk forever. (laughs) And everybody, check out BuzzBook Expo. It's going to be pretty awesome. Publishers all over the world, as Brennan just said. Thanks for joining tonight, and uh, we hope you enjoy this. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving. Dead space. My wife's a vocalist, and we, you know, write some music and uh, do some things here and there just for our sake. We're also in a wedding band together, you know, a, a cheesy Midwestern wedding band. It's, it's. Right. I gotta write that down. Did excellent. not know that. <laughs> I'm being so serious right now. Wait a so, minute, I changed my mind. Can we not talk about the cheesy wedding band I'm in? All right, I'll shut the hell up and we'll get started. No, you got to do the intro, so you can't shut up. That's true. Son of a bitch. <laughs> just keep talking.